0: O bravest knights, descendants of unconquered ancestors, remember their courage. Your land is shut in on all sides by the sea and mountains and is too thickly populated. There is not much wealth here and the soil scarcely yields enough to support you. Set out on the road to the holy place. Take the land from that wicked people and make it your own. That land which, as the scriptures say, is flowing with milk and honey that God gave to the children of Israel. Jerusalem is the best of all lands,
1: more fruitful
0: than all others, as it were a second paradise of delights. This land our Saviour made illustrious by his birth, beautiful with his life, And sacred with his suffering, he redeemed it with his death and glorified it with his tomb. This royal city is now held captive by her enemies and made pagan by those who do not know God. She asks and longs to be liberated and does not cease to beg you to come to her aid. She asks aid especially from you because, as I have said... God has given more of the military spirit to you than to other nations. Set out on this journey and you will obtain the remission of your sins and be sure of the incorruptible glory of the kingdom of heaven. And all who were present were moved to cry out with one accord, it is the will of God. It is the will of God. So were the words of Pope Urban II at 1095 at the Council of Clermont in France to rally the Holy Roman Empire to take up arms, to seize the Holy Lands, which we now know as a historical period known as the Crusades. Uh, From that call to arms at 1095, Came subsequently 200 years of seven crusades in the first crusade yes they they took back Jerusalem uh, they slowed down the uh, push of the Islamic Empire which was up into the doorstep of Europe yes they opened new trade routes into Europe itself but at what cost the Crusaders brutality was horrifying. Witnesses say that when the Crusaders took Jerusalem, they rode in the blood of the enemies up to the knees of their horses. And after they were done with slaughter, they went to the house of the Lord to pray. Jews were heavily persecuted, especially in the first Crusade. And Crusades today are seen as one of the greatest evils of Christianity by Muslims. And it's one of the greatest stumbling blocks for them to come to faith bloody sandy knights and knives armies driven by church and state now whatever you think about the crusades whether you think they served good or whether they served evil i think we can all agree that the motives behind the crusades were definitely mixed gospel values were mixed with human and cultural values. And human purposes were painted in biblical language of milk and honey, paradise and wickedness, redemption and the mission of God. When looking at the Crusades, a Christian historian comments, when we look at them, we start to ask, how could Christians... Do such unchristian things. Now, not every Christian then agreed with the Crusades, uh, but many Christians did think and went in fighting thinking that this was a Christian thing to do. How could Christians do such unchristian things and be so strong and courageous in doing something so unloving? And unchristlike. When we look at Joshua 1 this morning, it's a challenging text, or this evening, it's a challenging text because it's one of the passages that has often been misused. Joshua 1 challenges God's people to be strong and courageous, to take up arms to advance the kingdom of God. And it's been used throughout the centuries as a means to wage physical war as a means to wage social war, cultural war, political wars. That to be a Christian is to advance God's kingdom, God's way, with the sword in one hand, or a gun, or a party flag, and the Bible in the other. But when is it advancing God's kingdom, and when is it advancing human desire for power? When is it really God's way? And when is it our way? When is it the good news of Jesus? And when is it the good news of a middle-class, suburban life? When are the enemies of God on the outside truly enemies of God, or have we just created them to be enemies? We could very well avoid Joshua 1 because it misuses and jumps straight to Matthew 28. But I really think that by reading Joshua 1 with the whole Bible in mind helps us better answer these questions. It helps us from falling into the sins of the past, helps us critique our values and understand what being strong and courageous really means in a broken and splintered world. So let's pray and ask God for help as we look at his word together. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God of angel armies, we look at history past and your word has been mixed with human values and desires and applied in terrible ways. And we're grieved But we also know that sometimes, like a fish in water, we are blind to our own values and desires and claim them to be yours. So fill us with your spirit this uh, this evening. Teach us the work of your kingdom. Teach us the posture of your kingdom. Not by might, nor by power, but by your spirit, we pray. Amen. To get us uh, on our bearings right, because I think we've, we've spent several weeks outside of our uh, series for this year, uh, where we at Springwood Wimberley are looking at the whole Bible in 2021, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And for this first part of the year, we're looking at the Old Testament. And I like to think the Old Testament is like a sandwich. And because I don't like tomatoes or eggs in my sandwich, we're going to say the Old Testament is coronation sandwich made especially for the coronation of her royal majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Happy birthday. Um, And in case any of you loyal constituents of the Commonwealth don't know what goes into a uh, coronation sandwich there's bread, there's coronation chicken, which is curry, mayonnaise, chicken, and there's lettuce. Now the first term, that we look over here we looked at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible, uh, which is called the Torah, which paints for us the foundation beliefs, the foundational core of God's people. That's like the coronation chicken of the sandwich. It's gooey, it's mayonnaise packed with spice, it flavours the whole sandwich and holds it all together. This term, we're coming out of Deuteronomy and entering into the prophets, the Nephiim, They're not just prophetic books, but they're also historical books. Uh, they allow us to see how the Torah, how the first five books of the Bible are lived out in the real-life historical experience of God's people, whether that's living out or rebelling against. It's about how the Torah is lived out. And I like to see that the prophets are like the bread of our sandwich. And my choice in bread is low-carb, high-protein grain bread. So they are the top and the tail, the two pieces of chronological bread... That sets out what it means to live out God's word. From entering the land to exiting the land. From entry to exile. So that's the prophets. Then, later on in the year, we've got the letters, which is the writings, the ketuvim, uh, which we'll look at. Uh, It's there, it's nice, it fits, but it's a bit bitsy and it sticks in our teeth. But we'll pick at it in a couple of months' time. So the Old Testament as coronation sandwich, and you heard it here first. And so this evening, we're going to take off the slice of bread, and we're going to look at the book of Joshua, because it's not only the entryway into the prophets for us, but it's also the entryway of God's people into the promised land. And the first sentence of the book picks off right from the end of the last book in Deuteronomy. Uh, Joshua 1 verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aide, Moses, my servant, is dead. Moses has died just at the end of Deuteronomy. And there's a new leader, Joshua. The previous generation has also passed away and there's a new generation of God's people about to enter the Promised Land. If you were with us when I opened up Numbers 13, at this point in time, this new generation is kind of similarly where the old generation was in Numbers 13. Egypt was behind them, slavery was behind them, They had just finished 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. This new generation might not have seen Mount Sinai in person or remember it, but Mount Sinai is alive in their memories because they have just heard Moses preach sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses shows them that Yahweh, God of Sinai, is the same God that is in their midst. That Yahweh, the, the promise maker and promise keeper of Mount Sinai, is still the promise maker and promise keeper for this new generation. And they need to bind themselves, their hands and their hearts, to Yahweh. Joshua is about to lead a group of people into a foreign promised land. A group of people that's filled with... Sorry, a land that is filled with people who don't know God or worship God. And we're going to see, as you read the rest of Joshua, that not only do they not know God or worship him, they're quite antagonistic towards him as well. They're mightier, stronger, bigger than Joshua. And he's leading a group of people who have a track record of doubters, who are disappointments, discouragements, who has fears and failures. And to do that, Yahweh says to him, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. And in reflection, I think God is telling him to be strong and courageous, Not because the people are going to be bigger and mightier and stronger than they are. God's victorious. He can beat them. He's beaten the Egyptians. I think Yahweh is reminding Joshua to be strong and courageous because he's leading a group of people who are doubters and who will want to disobey. He needs to be strong and courageous because the people he's leading are going to go astray. Be strong and courageous. But it's not just, hey, Josh, take heart, you know, be brave, I believe in you, you know, you can do it. Joshua is to be strong and courageous, not because being strong and courageous is going to guarantee victory. He is to be strong and courageous because of who God is. If you've got your Bibles open, scan with me verse 2 to verse 6. Verse 2. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give you. Yahweh is the giver of the land. Verse 3. I will give you every place where you set foot as I promised Moses, Yahweh is the promiser and also the promise keeper, maker and keeper. Verse 4, he describes the territory. Yahweh is the one who defines the boundaries. Verse 5, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Not because you're strong, but as I was with Moses So I will be with you. Yahweh is the protector, He's the carer. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yahweh is in their midst, always with them. You can be strong and courageous not because of your strength, but because Yahweh, your God, is the giver, the provider. The promiser, the designer, the protector, and the carer of his people who are with them in their midst. And to do that, Joshua needs to follow his word. Verse 7 Obey all the laws of Moses, all the law of Moses, which I think he means by the book of Deuteronomy. Obey Deuteronomy, because verse 9. These are the commandments. Have I not commanded you? Verse 7, don't go left or right. Don't go astray. Verse 8, keep them on your lips. Meditate, or in the Hebrew, mutter it over and over again, day and night. Remember God and follow him. That's the message, isn't it? In verse 1 to 9. Remember God, the giver, the promise keeper, and follow him, his word. And strangely enough, this shouldn't be anything new for Joshua. And it's a bit of a deja vu for us, isn't it? Genesis, right, tells us that Yahweh is the giver of creation. He's the designer of boundaries of good and evil. He's the provider of everything. He's the promise maker and keeper to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob. He's the carer, so follow him. Exodus. Yahweh is the giver and taker of life in the Passover. He's the designer of relationships in the Ten Commandments. He's the keeper of promises uh, to save his people. He's the provider of deliverance. He's the carer who hears this people's cries, and he is in your midst. At Mount Sinai. So, follow him. Leviticus. Same things. Over and over again. Numbers. The same things. And in case nobody was listening, probably because Joshua was a young man, and young men tend to daydream in sermons, you get 34 chapters of sermon material in Deuteronomy that repeats Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers again. Remember God and follow Him. Choose life. It's like a Scooby Doo ending, you know, but every ending is the same. Remember God and choose life. Follow Him. We're beginning to realize what coronation chicken sandwich tastes like that each bite might be different, but each bite is the same over and over and over again. Remember Yahweh and follow him. Remember Yahweh and follow him. I've gotten to a stage in my life where I've decided on what tattoos I'll get, but I'm too scared to get them because I don't <laughs> like needles. So, But if I were to get tattoos, there'd be one on each forearm. And on the left forearm would be Deuteronomy Me 6.4, Shema in Hebrew. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. He O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. I'll bind it on my arms, literally, even though Deuteronomy says don't mark your skin, um, so that I will remember every day that Yahweh is my God and Yahweh alone is my God. On my right hand, this is going to be a rather obscure Latin phrase, subspecie eternatitis, which means from the perspective of the eternal. Because I'm right-handed, it's a reminder for me to do everything with the perspective of the eternal God in mind. Yahweh is my God. I will do everything in light of him. These two things are exactly what God is tattooing On Joshua at the start of this book as he leads God's people into the foreign land Yahweh is your God do everything in light of who he is now I'm not advocating for tattoos and I've already bagged these two Um, but Yahweh's words in Joshua speaks out to us this evening doesn't it but not only this evening But every time you read God's word, every time you chew on that coronation sandwich, every time you gather with God's people and hear his word, sing his word, pray his word, remember God and follow him. Shema Israel Adonai Elohim or Adonai Echad. Subspecie etonatitis. Remember John or Jane or Julian or Frank. I don't know your names. And it's too small to see. Yahweh is your God. Follow him. Isn't Yahweh the same giver of life? And the giver of your new life? Through the person of Jesus? That lasts into eternity? Follow him. With all your life. Isn't Yahweh the very same God who is the provider of your every breath and the breath of life in the spirit in you? Lay down your possessions and follow him. Isn't Yahweh the promise maker and promise keeper of your salvation that he would never leave you or forsake you? Walk with him all the days of your life. Isn't Yahweh the designer of your good, just as he was back then? Because he knows you and he's knitted you in your mother's womb. So trust that his ways are good, even if it doesn't look good or feel good at this moment. Isn't Yahweh the protector and carer of your body and soul? Because nothing in all of creation can separate you and the love of God in Jesus Christ. So follow him with all your heart and soul and strength and body and mind. Joshua 1 whispers loudly to us, Will you remember God and follow him? When Joshua looks into his past, into his ancestors, they were plagued with forgetting God and walking away from Him. And as you saw with me in Numbers 13, they thought they were doing the right thing. When we look at our spiritual ancestors in the past, they were plagued with forgetting God and walking away from Him. The Crusades, all the way to today... I think the most devastating failures that plague God's people is when we do ungodly, unchristian things and we think we are doing it in the name of Jesus. When we mistake power, wealth, satisfaction, stability, romance, family, political, cultural values and assume that they're gospel values. At the end of Joshua 1, verse 9, where we as the reader, as the audience, we are posed with a question. Will the next generation of God's people remember God and follow him? In 2021, the same question is posed to us. Will this generation... Remember God and follow him. I want to end with four reflections for us of what this means for us this evening. Number one, uh, the right strength and courage comes when you are immersed in God's word. At the start of Joshua's journey, God says to him, remember who God is, I am. But then you have to obey and read and meditate on the law, his word. The word of God, someone said, is like a bricky line. Now, I've never laid bricks, uh, but on good authority, um, for you to lay bricks on a straight line, you've got to have a bricky line. If you don't, you know, I, I think from, from my experience of watching YouTube videos, Uh, You get the the spade or whatnot, you get the thing, and then you plonk it on, and then you plonk it on, and then you do that, and then you keep going. And you keep going, and then if you don't have a bricky line, you you go back a little bit and you go, oh, wait a minute. I thought that was going well, but it was a little bit wonky here and there, and I kind of didn't end up where I wanted to go. But then you get a bricky line, which is pretty much just a piece of string that you tie on one end to another, and you follow it, then your wall is level. The Bible is your bricky line. Sometimes we go in life without the Bible and we go, oh yeah, yeah, I think I'm going all right. Yeah, I'm going on the, down a straight path. And then when we look back, we go, oh, actually I was a bit wonky here and that's kind of not where I wanted to end up. The Bible is our bricky line that shows us how to follow God in the right direction. Without it, we're a hopeless briggy. Number two. The right strength and courage comes from knowing that the kingdom of God is of this world, but not of this world. When we read the whole Bible, when we look at God's word, we see that Joshua 1 does apply to us because we have a new Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, who leads us into a kingdom of God which is already present. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. It's not a territorial battle because the war's already won. We are part of the kingdom of God And we are soldiers in the kingdom of God. Now, the Salvation Army has offices uh, for people. There's cadets, there's colonels, there's majors, all the way to generals, because they firmly believe that they are God's army. Now, I think the Salvation Army has gotten parts of it right, but they've kind of taken one picture of God's people and made it the picture of God's people. But I think we've got to reflect on that. God's people are soldiers. God's people, Matthew 28, tells us the kingdom of God has come through the person of Jesus, that the whole world is His, and the enemies are not of this world, but of the Spirit. We are entering a foreign land, but the land's already conquered. We're not here to conquer land but to conquer hearts. Our battles aren't with politics or culture. Our battles are to do with unbelief. A pastor once said, mission, church mission, Christian mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission is a way of bringing the joy of knowing Jesus And saying that it's not a private, tribal, national or ethnic thing. But it's for everyone. And as God's people, you are active soldiers in bringing the worship of God to people who don't worship him. If we are really soldiers, we're either fighting this battle or asleep in the trenches. There's no, there's no middle mark. You're either fighting the battle. You don't grow comfortable in battle if you're a soldier because there's always something greater at stake. You're either fighting this battle or you're asleep in the trenches. Number four. The right strength and courage is knowing that the battle of the kingdom of God is not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. If the kingdom of God is about the battle of people's hearts, we can't force people to believe in God. We can't force people to believe in Jesus. We can behavior modify them. Yes, you can if they do something good, you give them a lolly, and if they do something bad, you give them pain. But really, we've just conditioned people to follow God's law or God's good ways, without actually loving God. The battle is not with power or might, but with the Spirit. And so our equipment is a sword, a walkie-talkie, a set of hiking boots, and a pot of tea. We need a sword, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the only thing, the Word of God, that cuts into people's hearts. We need a walkie-talkie because we can't change hearts and only God can. So we need to pray to him as the changer of hearts. We need a set of hiking boots because the battle of the heart means we will need to be prepared to walk with people for a very long time, going up and down with questions and doubts. And because it's going to be a long journey, we need a pot of tea. The last point. I want to finish on. The right strength and courage for Christians is to carefully distinguish between the kingdom of culture and the kingdom of God. We're not immune to culture. We're all affected by culture, and we swim in it, whoever we are. It can be individual assumptions, all the way to group assumptions and class assumptions. I remember as a single person, uh, the first time I was invited to be a part of someone else's family... I suddenly thought to myself, that's, that's not how you dry dishes. That's not how you wash. The, the, the washing is on the right and the rinsing is on the left. That's not how you talk to your parents. We can be culturally blind if we are stuck in an echo chamber of the same culture. And because we have cultural assumptions, we can have cultural assumptions of what it means to be Christians Remember, it was within our lifetime that Christians believed that the segregation between African-Americans and Anglo-Americans was a godly thing to do. In our lifetime, Christians aligned with the white Australian policy. It's within our lifetime that Christian argued and defended the continued criminal status and incarceration of gay, lesbian, LGBT people. Whenever I think about the Crusades, I'm always haunted by the thought that in a hundred years' time, will people look at us in 2021 and ask, how could Christians do such un-Christian things. How could Christians do such un-Christian things and be so strong and courageous in doing them? Perhaps in a hundred years' time when people may be sitting in the spot where you're sitting, listening to another sermon of Joshua 1, will they look back to Christian Jane or Joe of Springwood Alive at Five and say, wow, these people lived for Jesus and pushed back against a culture of unchristian things. Or will they say, oh dear, how could Christians do these things in the name of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord of the Ages, Help us to be strong and courageous. Give us comfort and peace. And hold us all, little ones, safe by your side. Amen.